Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we'll be this morning. As you're finding Philippians 4, it's a joy to be back here. I, um, well, this isn't the first time I've been here. Of course, my uh, wife was raised here. She was here for, I don't know, 25 years or so until, uh, well, I took her with me as my wife uh, to a bunch of different churches, and now by God's grace, he's called me back here. In fact, the first time I stepped foot in this church was April 24th of 2006, 13 years ago. I had just shown up. Uh, I was stationed in Norfolk in the Navy, and I had shown up, and I thought I should go to church. And so I looked uh, in the yellow pages. Uh, for those of you that don't know yellow pages, it's like um, Google on your phone. Um, it's just like written out, and you can let, and you flip it. It's not, you don't scroll. If you try to scroll, it doesn't do anything. You have to turn it. And um, it's like a book. It's like a book. Okay, a book is, I'm just joking. So uh, I looked in the yellow pages and thought, where do I start? First, First Baptist Church in Norfolk. And so um, I came, and there's this young adult thing going on that I was invited to. And so I, I walked into the room, and uh, it was, well, like young adult worship services are sometimes. There were candles in different places. It was up in room 300. I can take you to the spot. And I, uh, there was, you know, uh, someone playing uh, worship songs on an acoustic guitar. It was super, you know, granola. And they, uh, at the end of it, there was this girl that, I, well, actually about in the middle of it, I recognized her and thought, I need to talk to her afterwards. And she was cleaning up these candles at the end. And so I thought this is my moment, you know, if I help her out, then she'll know that I'm helpful. I don't know. And so I walked up, and um, I, I said, hey, can I help you? And I'll, I'll never forget what she said to me. Uh, she turned to me and said, no, thank you, and kept on going. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, challenge accepted, right? And so uh, three months minus one day later, I asked her to marry me, and we were married later that year, and we've been married for about 12 and a half years. Now, I tell you all that to say, not to validate some of you young military guys who think everything you see, you ought to marry, but because, that's a joke, but because, uh, but because what I've learned over the last 12 and a half years is that in order to be someone that is a joy to be married to, I have to actually think about my wife, Right? Like, if you've been married for a long time, it's a long process of learning that the person that you are in marriage shouldn't be the same person that your spouse married on the same day. In fact, in couples uh, that, that sit across from me in, in counseling as I talk with them, uh, and they say, you know, they're not the same person I married. Well, they're not supposed to be the same person that you married. Now, they may, not be the, they may not supposed to be the person they are right now, but the fact is that in marriage, if you're still living like you were before you were married, you got a problem, right? You should be someone different in order to be someone that's a joy to be married to. In fact, now, I, um, I don't uh, work to know my wife because I'm still earning marriage. That doesn't work like that, right? Like, we stood before uh, God and everybody in the chapel right across over there in a room full of people, and we said our vows, and we entered into the covenant that God has established of marriage. And in that covenant, I'm not earning my marriage. Rather, I am learning 
how to dwell, how to think about being married to my wife so that it is a joy to dwell together. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because in Scripture, the Bible sets marriage as an example of God's relationship between him and his church, but also because what we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, is the truth that God dwells with those who dwell on him. God dwells with those who dwell on him. And I want to set this up appropriately because if you are of a different faith background than us in the room, than this church here, you may have been brought up in an idea or maybe someone in your family or someone somewhere told you that you have to earn a standing with God. You have to earn your salvation. And once you're in your salvation, that you need to keep doing stuff to maintain that salvation. And that is not what I mean by this today. In fact, everything you need for salvation was found and is found in Jesus Christ alone. That is it. But rather, now in this salvific relationship, in the salvation, the relationship that I have with God through Jesus Christ, I am learning as a follower of Christ what it means to be someone with whom God delights to dwell with. And what Philippians 4, 8 through 9 is going to teach us is that those who dwell on God, those who think on God, those who, it's a mathematical term, those who calculate, process the things of God, God dwells with them. In fact, look at Philippians chapter 4, the very end of verse 9. We're going to see at the end of this that this is true, that Paul is telling those at Philippi that if you do these things, verse 9, uh, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That God does not just offer peace in your circumstance. He offers himself, the God of peace being with you. And if you're in here today and not experiencing the peace of God in your relationship with Jesus Christ, this passage is going to challenge you about what you dwell on, what you calculate, what you process, what inhabits your mind most of the time. And it's going to teach us the pathway to peace of dwelling with God as being those who dwell on him. This is a principle found throughout Scripture. In fact, if you don't have a Bible, I'll read it to you. But in your Bibles, go to Isaiah chapter 1. You'll find an example of God saying that those who dwell on me, I dwell with. That thinking about your thinking is one of the parts of thinking how to be with me and I with you as a follower of God. In fact, you've heard this familiar passage before, Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. God says to his people, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And his people were just bringing Worship to him without thinking at all about their thinking and about their lives and about what they do. And God was looking at that going like, you think I'm satisfied by that? That's not what this whole process is about. In fact, look down at verse 
16. He says, listen, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. He says, look, you need to start thinking right and acting like one of God's people. And then he says in verse 18, come now, let us think together, says the Lord. And though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God is telling his people through the prophet Isaiah, why don't you and I come and why don't we just kind of dwell on who I am and what it means to be mine together and you'll watch as your sins fade away. In the book of Zechariah chapter one, it was after, it's an Old Testament minor prophet, you know, like who reads those things, right? Like, it was uh, after God had departed from his people because they had rebelled against him over and over and over again. And so he pulled his presence away from his people. And through the prophet Zechariah, while they are in captivity, he's, he, he says, say to them through Zechariah, thus declares the Lord of hosts, if you return to me, says the Lord of hosts, I, I will return to you. Hey, do you remember... Um, In uh, Luke chapter 11, when Jesus is talking about prayer, you remember the famous verse, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be open to you. If you do this, that will happen. If you do this, that will happen. And he says, comparing it to a father who knows how to give good gifts to their children on earth, how much more so does your heavenly father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That if you come and you ask, you will receive. That you and me, I am your God and you are my people. That I know how to give gifts to those who would draw near to me. I will draw near to them. The Holy Spirit, the greatest gift. You know the the parable of the prodigal son, don't you? Well, if you don't, it goes something like this. A son grows up in a family. And as he gets older, he realizes that he doesn't want to be home anymore. And so he goes to his father and says, Father, give me, your, give me my inheritance as if you are dead right now. And so the father gives him his inheritance and he goes and he squanders it all over the earth. At some point, the turning point in the story of the parable of the prodigal son is that the son who has squandered his inheritance is sitting in the muck and the mire of the mud of pigs and begins to think about his father and what his father has at home. He begins to process how I can get back to the father. And you know what happens when the prodigal son goes back to the father. He finds a father that comes to him. Church, you need to hear this. I want you to know that those, that God dwells with those who dwell on him. That God is with those who think about God and the things of God. And here's the issue that we run into in our culture, you and me, in this room, in this place. We often don't think about our thinking. In fact, we think we have thoughts, but we have thoughts we haven't thought about at all. You know what I'm talking about? You want to see a group of people that have thoughts, but haven't thought about anything they've done? Like, find a group of fifth grade boys, right? Fifth grade boys are just, they're just dumb. They just do stuff, don't they? And here's the thing. They have thoughts about things but they hadn't thought a thing about it, what they're doing, right? I have a friend whose wife uh, famously says often, I don't have any idea 
how any boy makes it alive past 10 years old. And you know that's true. Like, how were you thinking? I don't know, I thought it would. No, you didn't think about it. And so what God is doing is saying, this, this is a sign of immaturity, having thoughts that you don't think about. But oh, those who dwell, those who dwell on God, God dwells with. That God dwells with those who dwell on him. Here's where this gets real. If you, as a follower of Christ, are wondering why you are not experiencing the presence of God that leads to peace, it very well could be that what you dwell on is not him. What consumes your thoughts are not God and the holy things of God. And what this passage is going to do is give us a pathway to peace, understanding that the things of God are excellent and praiseworthy. It's going to give us an example of what it looks like to follow Christ, and it's going to show us that the pathway to peace of dwelling with God who dwells with us is to think deeply about him. In fact, go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. That was a long introduction. I hope you found the book of Philippians by now. Philippians 4, verse 8. Listen to what Paul writes to the church at Philippi. Once again, one more caveat. This is not how you get salvation. Look at the person next to you and say, this is not how you get saved. Okay, I have to keep saying that because you're not earning salvation by thinking right things. You are deserving of death, and you need a whole life, soul change, life-giving salvation in Jesus Christ. This is for those who are followers of Christ. Listen to this in verse 8. Paul writes, finally, brothers. Okay, so here's what Paul was doing in the previous verses. Paul can say finally because he just said something, and he's coming to a conclusion. Paul was just talking about, beginning in verse 4, how to have joy in the middle of anxiety, how to uh, allow your thoughts and your mind to go to God in prayer, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, he transitions the peace of God in your anxiety. Now he's going to broaden it out and see, now this is how you have peace in every area of your life as a follower of Christ. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul does something really good for us in chapter, in chapter 4, verse 8. If we have to go through and figure out, well, what does it mean to be pure and lovely and honorable? He kind of summarizes it at the end. He says, listen, if there's anything excellent or anything worthy of praise, that's what you dwell on. That's what you set your mind on. That's what you begin to calculate and process as a follower of Christ, which begs the question, what does it mean to be excellent? I brought a little illustration. Baby, would you bring that to me right there? That's my wife. I'm embarrassing her. She hates being in front of people, but, you know, there you go. Thank you, babe. You're beautiful. All right, so this is, yeah, she, all right. She's awesome. Okay, so 13 years ago is what you got. And so, so I brought you something. I actually um, uh, raided the preschool resource closet 
uh, this morning. So if you see Jan, tell her I'm sorry on my behalf. She didn't know. And so, um, and I got this beautiful musical instrument, and I'm going to play something, and I want you to judge whether or not this is excellent. This is my rendition of the Top Gun theme, one of the greatest movies of all time. You ready? <laughs> How did I do? Was that pretty good? Y'all know it wasn't. It's like a pity clap. <laughs> like, oh, poor kid, right? I have zero musical skill. Believe it or not, no training. You heard that, didn't you, right? <laughs> so, now, let's just pretend for just a minute. Let's, pre- let's just pretend, because I know that was terrible. <laughs> let's pretend for just a minute that I believed that this was an excellent rendition of some musical theme. Let's pretend for just a minute that in order to justify that, I began to say, well, music has notes, and I played notes, right? Must be excellent. And let's pretend, I said, well, there's tones in music and stuff and rhythm, which I obviously have none of, but nonetheless, I'm super impressed by my unimpressive act. And let's pretend for just a minute that I wanted to convince you that one of the most significant pieces in musical history has just been remade, and I just did that, and that was the most beautiful thing you have ever heard. You would look at me like I am absolutely crazy for taking something so insignificant and being so infatuated with my musical ability because I obviously have none. You see, this word excellent means that it is it is, uh, it is. Uh, unmatched significance. That the idea that this is set above everything else around it, it is indeed excellent. Now you and I both know that that was far from excellent, but here's what we often do in the Christian life. We see things that are not excellent and say, man, I'm going to set my mind on that. And now here's the definition of excellent that's actually from Scripture. In fact, go to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll see. How do we know if something is truly excellent? It's not because someone says it is, but because in Philippians chapter 1, God has declared it excellent. In fact, as a follower of Christ, look at how Paul defines excellent in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, it is my prayer. Okay, so here's what Paul just did. In the beginning of Philippians, he says, man, I'm so thankful in your partnership for the gospel, the fruit of what, is, of what God is doing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Oh, because of the great God and what he has done. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. So follow me through this for just a minute. Paul begins by praying, I want God, I'm asking God to expand your love through knowledge, through knowing who he is and discernment, through filtering things that come at you through the knowledge of God. And then he continues in verse 10, so that you may approve, you may put your stamp on, you may think about, you may grasp on to is that word, what is excellent, and look at the fruit of excellence, And so be, here's the result of things that are excellent, pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The biblical definition of excellence are those things in the life of a believer, 
that allow you, that draw you, that cause you to be pure and blameless. You know what another word for that is? Holy. That you as a follower of Christ are marked and designed to be holy. That those things that are excellent, that are set apart as having worth and value in the life of a believer, that those things that you ought to dwell deeply on are things that are pure and blameless, things that lead and guide and guard your holiness. You see, you're not designed. You, somebody in here needs to hear this. You are not designed. That's where we used to sit with our arms around each other when we were engaged. You are not designed for anything less than excellence, excellence defined as holiness. You are designed not to be playing some trinket in your life, but rather the beauty of an entire orchestra working together in a magnificent tone to shake the very soul of who you are. Have you been in a place like that before where you know this is excellent, this is beautiful, You've been, I don't care what kind of music you're at. I, I did a, a wedding uh, two years ago in a big old wooden uh, Methodist chapel uh, up in Pennsylvania. And in that thing was a, an organ that was like one of like three of those kinds of organs in the United States or something like that. And the guy whose wedding I was uh, doing, uh, he was one of the world ranked organists. And the guy who was playing the organ. I don't know my terms here, so if I'm messing it up, just follow along. The guy who was playing the organ was like above him in world ranking, like number one or three or something. And so I was standing there like in my, in my suit waiting for the bride to come down. And as soon as that guy began to wail on the organ, I'm telling you, the entire room shook. I've been to a bunch of rock concerts in my life. I like loud music. That was the most powerful experience I'd ever had in church. And I like loud church music, y'all. I'm telling you, as soon as that organ began to play and those tones began to go, I began to realize this is what excellent organ music sounds like. This is so good. Y'all, we know what excellence looks and sounds like. And you are designed for that as a follower of Christ. You are designed for spiritual excellence. That's what excellence means in the Bible. Those things that guard and guide and govern your holiness. And so here's the question. Have you been giving your mind to excellent, truly excellent things? When you dwell on the things that you dwell on most, are they the soul-shaking, heart-forming, holy things of God? Or is it some insignificant thing that you're infatuated with. See, we live in a culture where everybody has a thought about everything, but it seems that no one thinks about anything. And I'm talking about church culture. Before you think, I'm talking about them out there. Do you dwell 
on the excellent things of God. Oh, I bet that if you do not, you're having trouble finding the perfect and peaceful presence of God in your life who has designed you to think and to dwell on the holiness of God, the purity of God. Have you been dwelling on excellent things? But the passage doesn't just stop there. You see, he goes on to say, if there's anything excellent and worthy of praise, look at verse 8. If there's anything excellent and worthy of praise, think, dwell, process, calculate, uh, ruminate over and over in your mind on these things. And so here's the question. How do we know what's worthy of praise? Not just what is holy. God declares in Scripture what is holy. But now looking about in our life, how do we know what actually deserves recognition in our life to dwell on so we can pick and choose? And as we filter out, as we discern from uh, the Holy Spirit, as we discern what's coming our way, how do we filter out and go, you know what, that thing deserves recognition, that thing deserves giving my life to. When I was a 10-year-old boy, I went to a one-mile fun run at school. Have you guys been a part of these things before? This It's a one-mile fun run. Elementary schools did them. I don't know if, do kids even run anymore? I don't know. Like, um, that was a joke. I'm sure they do. Uh, it's a race, and you go, and you run a mile, and it's fun. One-mile fun run. It's self-explanatory. And so I went, and I figured out, because I'd been there before, that if you start here and then cut through the woods and come back on that side, uh, you don't have to run the whole thing, right? And so I thought, man, if I do that, I can run like a, like a five-minute mile. You know, I don't even have to do the whole thing. And so I lined up in the front, uh, with all of the like fast kids, and I wasn't that fast. I lined up in the front, and even one of the guys who was running the race came up and said, "Like, are you sure you're supposed to be up here? Because, you know, I know I look super tall now. I'm like five eight, but at the time, <laughs> I was short and still am. And so I didn't quite belong with the fast runners. And uh, I said, "Oh yeah, I'm good to go." He said, "You have to be able to run like at least a six-minute mile if you need to be here." I said, "I'm going to do this thing in five minutes." He said, "Okay." And so he went off to the side. The gun went off, and off I went. And I cut in the woods. Everyone passed, and I waited for everyone to come by. Jumped in the pack, ran. I ran a five and a half minute mile. It was awesome. In fact, in fact, here's what happened. I ran across the finish line. And my PE teachers came and were like, you, I can't believe you ran so fast. I, said, I know. I can't believe it either, you know? <laughs> and, and so they said, you, we got to recognize you for this. This is amazing. We have like a superstar athlete on our hands. I said, I know how you do. And that was awesome. It lasted through the weekend until Monday. Because on Monday morning, you know what happened? I was walking through the hallway and the assistant principal came up and said, Tim, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. He said, you know, I know that you ran a five and a half minute mile on, on Saturday. Like, yeah, I can't believe that. I said, well, you know, I can't believe it either. And he said, well, here's the reason why I can't believe that. 
You see, we have a tape of the start and the finish line, and it shows that you ran, jumped over in the woods, and then jumped in with the pack and crossed the finish line. You never actually completed the race. So, I don't believe it because you didn't do it. And I was caught red-handed. Now, you, you probably know where this is going, right? You see, that was not a race that was worthy of recognition, that was praiseworthy. You know why? Because I had defined the race to do what I thought ought to be done. You see, praiseworthy in the Bible is never what you think deserves recognition. In fact, that is so far from the mind of the Bible, it doesn't matter. It is minuscule. It is insignificant. But rather, praiseworthy are the things that God has declared deserves recognition. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, listen, you as a follower of Christ ought to find the things that God recognizes and lift those things up as magnificent in your life, as magnificent in this world. After all, as a follower of Christ, did you know that you were made magnificent in the image of God? Did you know that every single person you stare at on the street, in this room, and around this world, whether they look like you or not, were made in the magnificent image of God? That is why we value human life. But even more than that, we value the glory of God that is in our lives, that we represent. And now as followers of Christ, God, as the supreme object of what is worthy of praise, has given his mind to us, his standing to us, and you as a follower of Christ are holy and blameless and beyond reproach before him, that he has declared living in you that Christ in you is worthy of praise. And so what Paul is saying is not earn your salvation, figure out which things you ought to recognize or not. What Paul is saying is, listen, you find the things that God has declared is worthy of praise, and you raise those things up as magnificent as possible. You see those things that are holy, and you go after them. You see those things that are worthy of praise, and you dwell on them. And if you do this, oh, you will find that the God of peace dwells with you. Amen. And who does that? Like, I read this, and I go, who actually lives like that? And then verse 9. Look at what Paul does in verse 9. This blows my mind. Like, who, who actually is sitting around at everything that comes at them and going, man, is this, is this holy or not? I'm not making excuses, and I'm going to try to make it fit what God's magnificent, excellent holiness is in my life, what he's calling me to be. Is this holy or not? Is this recognized by God as worthy of praise or not? Like, who, who does that? Who sits around in their relationships and go, man, is how I'm acting, man, is this, is this the holiness that God has called me to? Is this worthy of recognition from God or not? Like who sits around at work and says, like who, 
Is this is how I'm living in this relationship with those around me and how I'm acting at work? Is this a holy action or not? Is this worthy of recognition before God or not? Like who sits around in culture and says the way I'm going to act and think and feel and talk about others who may not look or act or believe or have a political standing like me? Like how I talk about them and act toward them and think toward them and my attitude toward them. Is that holiness that's coming out? Is that something that God would recognize in me as good or not? Who actually thinks about that? You know who does? Paul does. Look at verse 9. Paul says, look at this, check this out. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. You know what's shocking about this? Not that God has not raised up godly examples in Scripture for us to follow. He does that all over the place. But the fact that Paul is sitting in jail under Roman guard, having lost his freedoms, people are talking about it. Just look at chapter 1. Here's what he says. He says, man, okay, like, I'm sitting in jail, but that's okay. I've processed that God's holiness is greater than my position, and the whole Roman guard has heard about the gospel because of my jail time. Man, people are talking bad about me in uh, using the name of Jesus. I know that doesn't happen in our church, huh, but it did happen in Paul's day. I know that people are talking bad about me in the name of Jesus, but who cares about my name as long as Jesus is preached? I've lost all of my freedoms, but that's okay because it's given me an opportunity to advance the gospel. Even in chapter one, man, my life is on the line. But for me, I process this, the holiness of God and the things he recognizes. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. If I die, I get Christ. If I live, I live for Christ. I win no matter what. Who thinks and talks like this? The Bible does about believers in Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, you want to see somebody who experiences the very peace of God because he's with me? Look at me in my chains. Amen. And I look at that and go, man. Like if I wasn't reading this and I was thinking about what is the example of someone who lives an excellent and worthy of praise life, my definition apart from scripture, would probably not be somebody who, at 55 to 60 years old, is giving his life for the sake of the gospel in some Roman imprisonment. Like, he's not too old to go on mission for the gospel. That's what this looks like. He's got things to lose, and he's Say, look at what this looks like. I'm telling you. Did you know? I mean, he's like at, at, he is fighting the war of the gospel. That's important to know because peace is a term that means the war is over and it is no more. Peace is a term that only makes sense when you've been in the battle before. And Paul is sitting in the battle saying, you want to know what peace looks like? Look at me. Here's the question that this begs to ask as I'm reading through this, studying this. What example am I going after 
Who am I trying to be like if I were to see Christ most excellent and worthy of praise in my life? Man, just look at those in Scripture. And you might say, I'm too old to do anything for the gospel. You know how old Peter was when he was crucified upside down? Dude was probably like in his late 60s, early 70s. Look at the apostles. They were, man, they, it's not like they, any of them were young, except for maybe James, he died early on. You know, but most of them were, were older. You might say, I'm too young. Man, look in chapter two, Paul recognizes Timothy. That dude was a young pastor helping Paul out in his missionary journeys. You might say, I have nothing to offer. All I can do is serve. Look at Epaphroditus that's mentioned in chapter two as one who almost died just to bring Paul the gift from the church at Philippi. You might say, I don't have anything to offer. I have no education. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm not even, I don't have a position that would glorify God. Look at chapter two. Paul, uh, uh, chapter two, where Jesus is magnified as the one who gave all things so that all might know the name of Christ around the world. You might say, I'm just a teenager. You know, you're going yeet right now. I learned that yesterday. Yeet. You're, you're casting this thing away for you older people. That means you're casting this thing away. I'm telling you, read the Bible. Look at the examples. Do not settle for those in culture who would say being just okay is okay enough. You have been made for excellent things. You have been designed to be worthy of praise that God has designed through Jesus Christ. And now we give our lives to think and to dwell and to exist on things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Even if it means that all things are lost because in the middle of that war of the gospel, the God of peace is with you for those who dwell on him. So what do we do with this? Well, we respond. In fact, with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're gonna just talk to God about what this means for us as a church and for each one individually now. Based on this text, I believe that there are probably maybe three applications or so. The first is, as you begin to pray, maybe you just need to begin to inventory your private life. I don't mean the life uh, when no one else is around, although that's a part of it, but even when others are around, where your mind goes and how you dwell. What do you spend your time thinking deeply about? If it is not the holy God and the things that God has said are holy, I want you to know you will not know God like you've been designed to know God. You are designed to dwell deeply on the things of God. So maybe you just need to take some time and allow the Lord to show you where you dwell most deeply on or what you dwell most deeply on. Second, do you think about your holiness? I've been working with people for a long time. I've been a pastor for a little over, well, for 11 years now. It's not that long, but it is a little bit of time to know that most of the time, and I'm included in this, God's people just don't take enough time or any time to dwell on what it looks like in their life to be pure and holy. 
We just think thoughts without thinking about them. Do you think about your holiness? Maybe you just need to think about that. And last but not least, maybe you need to think about those who you're surrounding yourself with. This is a principle of raising kids, right? You tell them all the time, don't hang around those people. You're gonna be like them. And then when we get as an adult, we're like, man, I, no one's telling me not to hang around them. Listen, you wanna be negative about the church? Hang around people that are negative about the church. You wanna have a bad marriage? Hang around people that have bad marriages. You wanna be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ? You hang around people that are passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You make them your examples. You wanna know what it looks like to live holy? Oh, you find people who are holy. And even if you have nobody else around you like the church at Philippi, even if you can't find a single person in your city, which you don't have an excuse for because you are a follower of Christ here, there's life groups all over the place that you need to join. Even if you can't find a single person in your life, you look at the Bible and say, what is Paul doing? What is Peter doing? What is Jesus doing? What is John doing? What are the apostles doing? What, are the, what, are, what is the church? What is God recognizing in Scripture? That's my example. My example is that because that's what God recognizes and that's who I want to be like as a follower of Christ. Who's your example? And as you're praying about that, if you're not a follower of Christ, now you come back because this had nothing to do with you until this moment. You can't earn your salvation. As a follower of Christ, you're figuring out how to be someone that God dwells with. But right now, if you're not a follower of Christ, I want you to know that you are as far from God as eternally possible. That you are so dead in your sin. That you, even if you're a nice old person that helped everybody, or a nice young person that helped everybody, you are so dead in your sin. You cannot help your Self. And so here's what God did in Jesus Christ. He made a way that you who were dead in your sin, you who are an enemy of God in your sin, whether you realized it or not until this moment, that he made a way to pay the penalty of your sin, to wash you clean from your sin, to declare you as holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And he did that by sending Jesus to die for your sin and you get his perfect, holy, blameless life. And you get that through confessing your sin and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you are not a follower of Christ, this morning right now is the time that you can confess your sin. You can be washed white as snow. Your sins can be uh, of, as far away from you as the east is from the west. And you who are eternally separated from God are now eternally brought into the presence of God forever and ever. And then this sermon applies to you. But this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, would you give your life to Christ today? In fact, it sounds something like this. You say, dear God, I know I'm a sinner, and man, he'll agree with you. You tell him, I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sin. He'll agree with you. You say, God, would you forgive me of my sin? And he will say, yes. And now, Lord, would you show me what it looks like to live a holy life in Christ Jesus? And he goes, man, that's, that, that's the life. That is it right there. That's what the, the kind of life I can dwell with. You and me in this thing. 
So whatever your response is this morning, let's make it right now. Let's pray. We'll have some ministers up front. Any of them can help you. And let's respond to what God is doing in our lives in this time. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for being so good to us. I pray, God, that you would in this moment allow us to respond with courage and conviction to your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who have been giving their minds to so many things that are not of you. God, for those who are followers of Christ that have forgotten what it means to guard their hearts and their minds, to take every thought captive, to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. They've forgotten what it's like to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. Lord, I just ask that you would help them come to true terms with what they dwell on, and God, give them the courage to know what that next step is, to follow you, to dwell on you and the things that you have declared holy and the things that you recognize. Lord, for those who are not followers of Christ, I ask that you would in this moment convict them of their sin and also that that conviction would lead to repentance and faith in you. God, I pray that you would help all of us in this moment to take the next step to walk out of here more in love with Jesus and more like him than when we came in. And it's in his name we pray, amen.